Welcome to Journey to Esquire, the podcast. I'm Jocelyn Hardrick, founder and president of Diversity Access Pipeline, Inc., the company behind this podcast and other great programs like Journey to Esquire Scholarship and Leadership Program, which provides $2,000 cash scholarships to third-year law students and internships to second-year law students, along with leadership training and mentors. And Journey to Esquire, the blog, which provides insightful articles to help navigate you through law school and beyond. Find out more on our website, www.journeytoesquire.com. Hey, have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer, just like I'm doing now. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, hi, it's Jocelyn Hardrick, founder and president of Diversity Access Pipeline, Inc., the nonprofit organization behind this podcast and other great programs like Journey to Esquire, the Scholarship and Leadership Program, and Journey to Esquire, the blog. Welcome to this episode of the podcast, where we will be passing the mic to Dr. Lindana Morast. Dr. Morast is an MD and an MPH. She is a physician that primarily practices um, primary medicine for adults at Northwell Health, and she also does research regarding health disparities for people of color with chronic illness. And she is part of a group of doctors who are trying to tackle the problems and come up with suggestions to help people who are in that position. She's also part of a group of folks at Northwell and in conjunction with Minority Health to put together a series of conversations called Corona Conversations. And I attended one of them, they were very helpful to help people understand what is going on with COVID-19 and what happens when you get it and how to recover and stop the spread. So welcome Dr. Morast, how are you? Hello Jocelyn, I'm well, thank you, how are you? I'm doing well, I'm super excited because Dr. Morast is one of my besties. Yay. You know, I interviewed Keita Brereton, who was an attorney, and um, now I'm interviewing Lindana, and then I'm also going to be interviewing Annette Clark, who is a oh, doctor, nice. and she's going to talk about mental health. Mental health. But today, we're focusing on physical health. And so before we get into that, though, we always want to know about the journeys of our guests. So although she didn't have a journey to Esquire, she did have a journey to doctor which is similar in a lot of ways and in some much more difficult. So Landana, tell us a little bit about why you wanted to become a doctor and what that process was like. Well, I wanted to help people. <laughs> and that's the stereotype, right? That's what all of us say. Um, and that means different things to different people. But for me, I wanted to be a doctor ever since I was almost 14 years old. And um, maybe because I couldn't find anything else to do, but it came together, it worked out. Um, majored in psychobiology while I was in college. I went upstate New York to Binghamton and um, took a year off in between. And then I went on to medical school at Stony Brook, then did internal medicine training at Boston Medical Center. Um, 
and that was phenomenal. Uh, then worked for a bit in the Bronx, then did a fellowship. And um, for me, I think over time, as I, you know, evolved in terms of my experiences, uh, a lot of it was speaking to different people, getting different types of exposure to understand where it is exactly I wanted to be. Uh, the person who, you know, at 14, who wanted to be a doctor and then actually applying and getting into being in, in medical school and being in residency, you know, pretty much you plan your life up until medical school. And then after that, it's like, whoa, wait, <laughs> what, I, what do I do after that? Someone, you know, needed to tell me um, that there were so many options. And um, so navigating that space was, was very interesting. But I've always had this strong desire to make a difference um, in the lives of people. And um, over time, just saw the need um, for people of color to, you know, have a physician that they can go to to get information, to get help. And then later on, recognizing the need that I can, you know, work with someone one-on-one -on -one in the office, but then also there's a need to, um, to try to have change that's at a higher level. And so that, that was part of what drove me to get the, the MPH later on. So that's a great story because it goes directly to our mission with Journey to Esquire, which is to help students of color understand that they have a lot of options, right? Yes. Like you said, a lot of us just plan, once we get in, we're like, okay, we've achieved this goal. What yeah. do we do now? now <laughs> yeah, and we're just like, oh, you just get your, your um, degree, you pass the test, you get the license, yeah. start practicing. But there's this whole world out whole there that someone world. has to guide you. Yeah. yeah. So that's excellent. And um, you said you got your MPH. It was at Harvard, right? Yes, it was. <laughs> and um, that was a very transformative awesome. experience. Um, and I think for me, being at Harvard, I definitely got, you know, you get indoctrinated into this sort of pursuit of excellence. Um, you want to do everything to sort of a high degree. And um, it definitely, you know, being in a place surrounded by so many people who do wonderful things, it makes you think big and want to have an impact, a larger impact in the world. So it's definitely a phenomenal experience. That's excellent. So tell us a little bit about some of the coaching you do, because I know you are very involved with the, law, the medical student organization. So like there's the National Black Law Students Association, which mm -hmm. is the um, organization, I guess it's over 50 years old now, that kind of organizes Black law students to really help them rally, get through law school successfully, and like you said, create a standard of excellence. So what is the medical school version of that? And talk to us about your involvement. Right. So uh, while in medical school, um, it's called SNMA, Student National Medical Association. So that's the body where a lot of the, uh, you know, Black medical student, students gather. They have an annual conference. It allows for networking. And it does pretty much the same thing that you're doing, you know, through the organization, trying to help medical students understand the different paths, um, help them understand um, the field that they're getting into, provide mentoring and different types of experiences and different types of exposure. So this is why you're in medical school. And then um, the you know, beyond medical school version of that, there's NMA, National Medical Association, which is the organization for black physicians. And so a lot of people might say, well, why do the doctor, the black doctors need to get, to get together by themselves? Like, why do we have such an organization? And this is one of those cases where it's important to understand the history because um, NMA actually celebrated 125 years this year. And the reason why it was a separate organization is because black doctors couldn't become part of AMA, American Medical Association, which was, you know, the general, um, place where physicians gathered. So because of segregation, Black doctors had to create their own community, and this is now over 100 years ago. And yes, times have changed, but obviously there still is a need for the organization and also um, 
pull black doctors together and to address you know the needs of you know, the black community and minority communities Yes, and there is a lawyer version, the National Bar Association. So mm -hmm. you see a trend. Yes. <laughs> there, was always, there was the American Bar Association. Yeah. They did not used to admit black attorneys or women. And then the National Bar Association was formed, I think, almost 100 years ago. I've lost okay. track, but it's about yeah. the same time period. And they admitted women and men, and they did not discriminate against right. uh, based on race, which is interesting. When these organizations started, they were ma they made sure they did not repeat the prejudices that these other organizations engaged in. But they're still providing a very valuable service. And yeah. as you know, med school enrollment and law school enrollment for people of color is on a decline. Mm -hmm. Even when they get in, they don't always matriculate and graduate. And so there is such this enormous need for support. And so that's why Journey to Esquire exists, to provide emotional and financial support to students. That's why NMA yeah. exists. And you are doing some work with coaching as well to help new doctors and um, yeah. medical students. Do you Thank want to talk you about for bringing that? that up? Sure. <laughs> so um, I hope in the next few months, I you know, will begin the, tra tra the official training to become a coach. But my interest in coaching um, you know, has evolved from personal experience, having been a coachee myself, and just seeing how it can benefit, you know, an individual. I think personally, everyone can benefit from coaching. I mean, part of it, you help, it helps you to better understand who you are, you know, as a person. And I think as a professional, so many of us are caught up, we get caught up in, you know, um, acquiring the credentials, that sometimes we don't take time to stop and reflect. And what I've come to realize is that, um, you know, when you get to that point where life is planned, up until school, then you have to figure out what your next steps are. Part of it is having a network and understanding what those options are. But then also part of it is understanding who you are as a person. What kind of environment do you want to work in? What are your strengths? Where do you thrive? And I think coaching helps people um, understand themselves a little bit better to be able to make these decisions, help you understand your purpose and your, um, you know, your personal mission for yourself, have a, you know, gain clarity in terms of the impact you might want to have in the world, or even if it's in your personal life at times. So I think sometimes just being able to have a space where you outline those priorities and then you set your own personal and professional agenda and to then sort of move forward with that with a certain timeline. So coaching helps with that. And so my, um, my goal is to be able to, similar to Journey to Esquire, help um, women and underrepresented minorities in the future sort of gain that clarity within the field of medicine and whether it's, you know, staying in academia or moving on to something different, but just being able to see themselves in a, in a larger sort of universe, a larger space to understand where they want to go. Yeah, that's excellent, because I'm thinking, yeah, that's what we do with Journey to Esquire and a lot of the students give that feedback and said, you know, I've never stopped and reflected on so many of these questions. Mm -hmm. It really made me think, what kind of lawyer do I want to be? What yeah. kind of, you know, spouse, parent? Because we really talk to them about the demands of the profession and just right. like medicine, you know, um, very demanding pro profession. It can swallow you up if you let it. Right. You have to decide in advance that um, you want it to be done in a, a specific way. And we have people to model that for them. Mm -hmm. And so now let's transition over to talking about these Corona conversations. You know, everyone thought this thing was just going to hang out for a couple of months. And here we are several months later. Yeah. And gonna, it looks like we're going to be going into the new year with it. And so you had these great conversations trying to guide people to figure out, you know, um, 
what happens if you get COVID, how to avoid getting it, what are the risks. And because a lot of people in our audience tend to be younger and don't fit the profile of people who get seriously ill from COVID, yeah. want to just have a little conversation about what they should be considering right now. So let's start with kind of what is COVID generally um, and what is the range of symptoms and problems that can arise if you contract it? Yeah, so, you know, COVID is a very interesting disease. Um, I always want to mention that it's, it's a new condition. It is a new disease that came about at the end of 2019, and um, it's, it's a virus. And so um, it can be transmitted from person to person, and it really causes an upper respiratory-like illness, because in the beginning, we all thought it was like a flu. I think I even told you that at some point in one of our conversations. Oh, it's just a flu. But the difference is that it's, uh, it's much more contagious and it actually causes problems in other symptoms. So the way it's different from a flu is that um, it is much more severe, highly contagious. And over time, we found that it can affect different organs. So at some point, there were cases of like, young people having strokes, like they had no other symptoms of coronavirus, but they um, would get very ill and have a stroke, which is uncommon in a young person. And it was found that coronavirus can cause um, blood clots, right? So sometimes you hear blood clots, people might get it in their leg or they might get it in their lung. And so that became part of the disease, this new condition. Um, but to answer your question, you know, it is an upper respiratory-like illness, most commonly uh, fever, cough, shortness of breath, those were some of the more common symptoms. Um, losing the sense of taste and smell became another very specific feature of coronavirus. And then there, there are other symptoms people would have, obviously fatigue, severe fatigue. Um, sometimes that would last weeks to months. Um, some people had like a diarrhea-like illness, but for the most part, upper respiratory, but potentially can affect other organs. Um, and so because it is so contagious, you know, the recommendations coming from CDC and other governing bodies are to quarantine and uh, 14 days initially over time, you know, they shortened that a little bit, but I think a 14 day quarantine still remains the standard. And um, there isn't a set treatment for it. So for example, if you go to your doctor, you test positive for the flu, we would give you something called Tamiflu. There is an actual treatment for the flu. We can talk about another conversation, how effective that treatment might be, but there is a medicine I can give you. So if you go to your doctor and you get test positive for coronavirus, there is no treatment for it. So obviously, you know, the medical community, the researchers, scientists are working on various treatments and um, there are many studies being done and there isn't right now there isn't any one medicine that we're saying this is the best medicine to give for it but a lot of different things were tried such as plasma and you would have heard about um, you know hydroxychloroquine there are different anti um, antiviral medications that are being studied so a lot of things are being studied and then obviously there is you know the race to the vaccine which you're probably going to hear a lot about in the next few weeks and months because the hope is that the same way every year we get the, or at least we offer the flu vaccine, the, the plan is to develop a coronavirus vaccine. And that's another conversation in terms of how effective and who should get it and um, how long is it going to last. But um, a lot of the questions now around coronavirus are include, um, you know, can I get a repeated infection? So if I got it once, can I get it again? And so in the beginning, it wasn't clear if coronavirus was like the chickenpox, which is also caused by a virus, where once you get chickenpox as a kid, you're not gonna get chickenpox again. You have it once and you're immune for life. Um, and so 
the question is, is it like that or is it more like the flu where every, so right now it's September, it was the fall, rather fall 2020, and a new flu season is starting. And so then the question is, is coronavirus going to be like the flu where every season there's potentially will be sort of new strains of coronavirus and then people can get it multiple times. There are suggestions that um, people, some people do have repeated infections. It's not clear how long immunity lasts, whether it's just for a few months or if it's going to last for years and what causes someone to have immunity for how long. So there's still a lot of unanswered questions, but I think the beauty, even though sometimes it's hard to find beauty in coronavirus with, you know, all the negativity around it is that it does show, I think, um, the beauty of modern science, uh, you know, our ability to be able to try all these different treatments, um, to be able to try to get a better understanding of the disease and the idea that we can even, you know, talk about potentially a vaccine in the near future, I think just shows just, you know, our technology and our, you know, tremendous ability when it comes to, you know, science and medicine and research. Okay, wow, that's a lot of information, but it's so useful. It's good to know because, you know, we've read all these articles about schools reopening, the yeah. students all hanging out and partying, and then hundreds of positive tests coming yeah. within weeks and so that's a, a huge concern for a lot of people our local law schools have gone online so that they can try to avoid that yeah. but now that we know what it is and how it's contracted what should young people especially do besides quarantine to keep themselves healthy and give them the, the highest chance of recovery and also to prevent spreading it to loved ones and friends yeah, so I think some of the general principles of, you know, being healthy and taking care of yourself apply. So the concept of you are what you eat. So you want to start by consuming a healthy, balanced um, diet, right? And when I say diet, I don't mean to actually diet, but just the foods that you eat, fruits, vegetables, you know, minimizing unhealthy foods, whether it's, um, you know, fatty stuff, fried stuff, and then trying to keep a balance because that helps boost your immune system and that overall helps maintain your health. And in terms of, you know, other things young people can do, other than, you know, taking care of yourself in general, wearing the mask does help. And we can debate about whether your mask has two or three layers and whether what kind of material it has. But once you have a mask and you're wearing it properly, that is, it should cover not just your chin or your mouth, it should cover your nose for it to, you know, work well, that does help reduce uh, the transmission rates. And so it's interesting that, um, you know, we're going into the fall and that, yes, there's a lot of anxiety in terms of reopening of schools and, you know, transmission among kids. And even though they're not the ones that get the sickest, many of them can be carriers where they have the virus on them. It's not making them sick, but because they have the virus on them, they can potentially transmit it to someone else who, um, who would be at greater risk. And what we saw from coronavirus is that younger people did better, older people did worse, and actually men did worse than women. And so, you know, being cognizant of who are the people around you. So when we talk about wearing the mask, sometimes it's not just about yourself. It's really about who are the people you're in contact with. Are your family members ill? Do they have cancer? Do they have some kind of disease that suppresses the immune system or just some kind of chronic illness like diabetes, like asthma, which we found were the conditions where people did much worse, um, had higher death rates. And so wearing the mask helps, but I tell patients it's not necessarily about you, but it's about the people who you are around. So even as you know, different families had to make choices about whether or not they should send their kids in for in-person learning, it really became you know, a personal decision, but also like a family decision. If the kids are 
maybe living with grandparents or grandparents who are ill, or if the, if the, their parents have certain conditions, it's just, you know, to take the, um, the utmost to be, have the biggest, take the biggest precaution, the thing to do is to stay inside. If you go out, wear the mask, wash your hands as, you know, as often as possible. Be conscious when you touch these sort of high touch areas, whether it's the, you know, the light switch, the doorknobs, things like that. So I think um, people are definitely more aware of these kinds of things. Um, and so I think it's important for uh, for your audience definitely to to just remember that, that wearing the mask is helpful. Um, and again, it's not, may not necessarily be for you, but to protect the people that are around you. Yes, that's an excellent point because there's a lot of people politicizing all of this. And I'm thinking it's, I don't know if it's that complicated, but if let's put politics aside, right. <laughs> wear the mask, wash your hands frequently, isolate, just take care of your body generally so it has the biggest chance to recover well and try to avoid exposure to people who are vulnerable. That's what I'm hearing you saying essentially. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. And then so, um, you know, all, a lot of our students are diverse folks, racially, ethnically, even age-wise, because a lot of older individuals, second or third careers, right. people who are- Decide to go back to school. Yeah. yeah they're, they're, they're retired from the military and decide to go back to school. And like I said, and like both of us experienced, grad school is very stressful. So what are some additional precautions they can take, especially because you're spending long hours studying in front of a screen, yeah. um, and a lot of them are doing it with the pressure of family and friends around them in their home, as opposed to, you know, like I said, being in the library all night, like we used yeah. to do. Any tips you have for the general health for um, students in that position? Yeah. Um... So one, I think acknowledging that this is a very stressful time for everyone and to be in tune with your body and how you feel. Um, what I've been seeing is that a lot of people, for many, this is the first time that they've had this high level of stress and for so long. And so you start feeling things that maybe you didn't feel before. <laughs> so your body is experiencing this level of anxiety that you might not even realize it's anxiety because it's so new to you. Um, so. I would say definitely make sure you have a doctor that you can see and talk to. And of course, I'm biased because I am a primary care physician and I do believe everyone should have a primary care physician and should see them annually. Um, so that's my little bias I have to put out there. So one, acknowledging the stress is one. Um, and then to whatever extent you can, you know, for yourself, whether it's create a routine, um, definitely speak to the people around you who you live with, let them know what your needs are, because everyone is going through this, whether it's your kids, your spouse, your partner, um, we're all going through something. So creating a space where you can talk to the people around you and how you feel, and to try to make your environment more supportive. And whatever that might be for you, whether you maybe you need some quiet time to step away and that quiet place might be the bathroom that's okay <laughs> wherever it is that you need to find it find it um for some of us it might be stepping away from our phones right i mean all of this constant you know whether it's the social media or just you know checking sometimes that adds to the anxiety too um so sometimes just giving yourself the digital detox for whatever amount of time and sometimes just like a few hours um and if you're able to create, you know, some so people create different groups where, you know, they have kids, you know, they agree that we're only going to have play dates with this one other kid who, you know, so one other family who um, we're being cautious. So let's say if you have to study, do you have another friend or partner that maybe you guys can agree, you guys can, you know, find a space where you guys can study together in your respective homes or something. So I think definitely 
be becoming creative about you know how you use your space and definitely your time and having just open conversations with your family and with your friends just about what we're going through because it is sort of this shared stressful experience. Well, Dr. Moraz, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for all those great tips. Thank you for inviting me. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of Journey to Esquire. If you want more information about our programming, please visit www.journeytoesquire.com. Share, like, subscribe, and we will see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye -bye. Thanks for tuning in to another great episode of Journey to Esquire, the podcast. Support, share, subscribe. And for more, visit www.journeytoesquire.com.